Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast number 23, the award-winning short story, Grief, read by the author. A medical student is infatuated with her much older professor and defies her mother's warnings of disastrous results if she continues the affair. But the mother's feelings are complicated by the arrival of a box in the mail that intensifies memories of her own similar affair with a man decades before. I'm Bill Coles, your host, so let's get started. Grief by William H. Coles Tuesday, the old cardboard shipping box with UPS tracking labels left outside Sarah Tanner's door by the building manager came from Florida. Masking tape fortified the torn edges, and black marker blotted out the original California Wine Company logo, and on top were coffee-stained partial circles from coffee cup rims. She briefly worried the box might be a threat. She was afraid of everything lately after her divorce. She cut the carelessly applied transparent tape that sealed the top. She folded back the flaps. She rummaged items from a camping trip, a backpack, water bottles, a toilet kit, extra hiking socks. Every item evoked memories of her fervent secret affair with Peter Moscone more than 25 years ago. In the bottom of the box was a business envelope with no markings, the flap sealed with scotch tape. She opened it. A white gold engagement ring dropped to the floor. A faceted diamond, perfect color, no inclusions, and more than a carat glittered rare value. Pristine without blemishes. She picked it up, clutched it in her hand. It's how she remembered the perfection of her affair with Peter Moscone. Pristine. She'd never seen this ring before, but she knew it was meant for her. Their love for each other had been interrupted by the suddenness and immediacy of the breakup. Peter believed she had been unfaithful. Unfounded, but circumstantial evidence, delivered in rumor and innuendo, had convinced him otherwise. She sat and put her head back on the armless metal kitchen chair to stare at the blistered paint on the ceiling. Almost everything about Peter, his kindness, his caring, returned to her with edged clarity. And the longing resurfaced, began to consume her again. Tears blurred her vision. It was easier to ignore Peter when she was still dutifully caring for her husband Carl and her daughter Carmen. But Carl, a surgeon ready to retire, lived alone after the divorce in his three-room apartment, and Carmen was a medical student in training and lived near the hospital. The quiet of this post-divorce rented apartment now irritated her. She turned on a radio near the sink. She sat again and leaned forward, resting her forehead on her arms. Many minutes passed before she reached for the phone to call the name Richard Conway on the return label on the box. Richard Conway, a probate lawyer in Florida, was not available for phone conversation at first. And when he finally did respond, he was unfriendly. Mr. Moscone was dying, he said. Leukemia. He had made up a will for Moscone. He asked me to find this box, Conway said. I had to crawl below ground to a storage bin beneath his apartment. Sarah needed to believe Peter still cared that he hadn't forgotten, that she had misguided him. There was an expensive ring, she ventured. I'd do probate. I barely know him. 
is probably worth $10,000. Is that a mistake or what? Mr. Conway was silent. Can I talk to him? she asked. He's on a respirator most of the time. He mouths a few words, but he mostly writes on a pad. Would you ask him about the ring? she asked. Sorry, I'm finished with him. The will is finalized. Where is he? What hospital? Near Sarasota, Conway said. He reluctantly looked up the address. Goodbye, he said abruptly. In the morning, Sarah chose her white blouse, black skirt, and matching jacket to attend the evening faculty meeting after work without having to come home to change. Later that night, she had to meet her daughter, Carmen. A rumor circulated that Carmen was dating a man her father's age, the chairman of psychiatry at the university where Sarah worked as a scientist. Hospital and school policies prohibited faculty dating students. The policy prevented favoritism that might result in costly legal action. If Carmen persisted in the affair, scandal could strangle her career and her lovers. Sarah was afraid to intervene, afraid to risk the last of her barely existent parental control. But Carmen no longer accepted her father's calls, and her father had insisted Sarah talk to Carmen. He was angry and frustrated with Carmen's denials, irate at her irrational behavior. After faculty meeting, Sarah took a cab to Carmen's apartment. Carmen was not home, so Sarah dined at a deli alone and then let herself in to wait. Finally, just before midnight, Carmen arrived and immediately expressed resentment of her mother's unwelcome visit. Carmen obviously suspected Sarah's purpose and delayed their talk with hyperactivity and silence, finally spending many minutes behind the closed bathroom door. Sarah waited anxiously, sitting cross-legged on a throw rug, proud at 61 she could bend like a teenager. Carmen emerged from the bathroom in pajamas and a robe and settled into a place on a love seat. The lights were off. Carmen preferred the dim light that seeped through the window from the street with a half-drawn shade. Sarah asked about Carmen's rotation at the hospital. Carmen did not respond, her face barely visible, perched on a love seat, her left leg up, her right foot positioned to relieve chronic pain she had from a congenital deformity of the lower spine. Sarah never suppressed her worry about the imperfection, even though she'd been told by many she was blameless. That some handed-down gene or some accident during the pregnancy was not responsible. Carmen gasped with pain and changed position. Uh, can I get you a pillow? Sarah asked. I don't need a pillow, Mother. I need to go to bed. It's not me, Carmen. I didn't come to irritate you. Your father thinks we need to talk. It's not negotiable. Below the window shade, a dim glow from a neon bank side across the street outlined shapes in the room, but did not throw shadows. Icy rain pelted the windows. The joint tip between Carmen's thumb and forefinger glowed as she inhaled. We're in love, Carmen said. Sarah paused. It can't work, Carmen. We're discreet. His wife knows, Carmen. He doesn't love her. I don't think he ever did. Married professors can't love students, Sarah said. My God, Mother, what difference does that make? It's against school policy, Sarah said. It's immoral. He's going to separate. Sarah leaned back on the floor, put her hands behind her head. 
crossed her legs as Carmen stared. Suddenly she worried Carmen would see her flexibility as a taunt. She sat again with her arms around her knees. He told the committee the affair was over, Sarah said. I heard it at work. They warned him. He denied any wrongdoing. I heard from one committee member they almost recommended his dismissal. He has to say that, Mother, until his divorce is final. Sarah waited. Your father won't support you if this goes on. He told me to tell you. Carmen hissed with disgust. How could you let him do that? I have no say with your father. You won't answer his calls, Carmen. He needed me to tell you. Carmen scraped the butt dead in the ashtray. She closed her eyes. You'll support the tuition, she said. You have to do that. Sarah hesitated. I don't have that kind of money, Carmen. Make him do it, then. What's different? I'm his daughter. You're having an adulterous affair. No one approves. He thinks you're ruining your life. And you, what do you think, Mother? It's crazy, Sarah didn't say. You're blinded by lust for an older man that is attracted to your youth. There is no permanency in that. You're doomed to pain and humiliation. But, she said, I think you're making a serious mistake. As if you're some expert. What the fuck would you know about love, Mother? I've never wanted what you and Dad had. You know, Carmen, I don't give a damn what you do anymore, Sarah said. I know more about love than you'll ever know, Sarah thought, thinking of her memories of Peter Moscone, but said nothing. What she had with Peter was beautiful, spoiled by the misunderstanding that shattered her joy of caring. It was love so special, so electric and binding between two human beings that Carmen could never know. But Sarah could not tell Carmen now. Carmen would dispute every word, and another argument with Carmen would only accent Sarah's failure as a mother. Carmen rolled to one side to ease the pain of her standing. I'm going to bed, she said. I'll sleep here till morning, Sarah said, moving to the love seat. Suit yourself, Carmen said. Sarah could not sleep. With time, Carmen's crack about Sarah knowing nothing about love hurt Sarah more than she would have expected. But why allow Carmen the satisfaction of irritating her at will? Look at the facts. Carmen hadn't developed life skills Sarah had hoped for. Oh, Sarah loved Carmen and worried for her. But Carmen was not a superstar in anything. Of course she was pretty enough. Being young helped her, and her deformity was barely noticeable. But she was consistently cranky and insecure, smart but not brilliant, demanding but never giving and she had no parental respect, none at all. Well, Sarah reasoned, I gave her so much more than most mothers. She was definitely not responsible for Carmen's mediocrity. That Sarah ultimately blamed on Carl. He really wanted a boy. Sarah saw the disappointment in his face after the delivery. At first, he was kind and attentive to Carmen, and loyal, even if humorless. But as Carmen got older and lost her daddy's cute little girl routine, Carl ignored her. He spoke in platitudes and reprimands, chipping away her already thin veneer of confidence. Dawn came. 
Sarah sat up and put her bare feet on the floor. She would go see Peter. He was dying. She wanted to believe his package was a signal of his longing for her over these years, longing she hoped equaled her own. She wanted to know her never-fading passion, although suppressed by time, marriage, and motherhood, was not just a memory of what might have happened. She was unconcerned with pretenses now. She'd been desperately lonely for years. If Carmen knew about Peter, saw him, saw the source of Sarah's intensity, caring, hoping, and longing, Carmen would know why love lost had ossified Sarah's heart, forever trapping the marrow of feeling inside. It was not Sarah's fault, but it had dried up any caring they as a family might have had for each other in the early years. One of Sarah's Ph.D. colleagues knew a spine clinic near where Peter was hospitalized. Sarah made an appointment and insisted Carmen go. They would have three days together. Carmen resisted by reflex, but her pain had turned worse with winter, and she liked the idea of warm Florida, where she could get pills her internist would no longer prescribe and take medically-related personal days off from her student duties at the hospital. The next day, Sarah went to Carmen's apartment, and they took a cab to LaGuardia. The freezing rain iced the wipers, and visibility was not good. Carmen undid her wool coat in the heat of the cab. Sarah thought Carmen looked attractive in a coquinal red dress, the hemline above her knees to show her thin, only slightly defined legs, which gave her a little girl look. Sarah understood how a middle-aged man could be attracted to Carmen's youthful skin and natural blonde hair. "'Who's this friend?' Carmen asked, as if it was the first time she'd thought about it. Sarah wanted to blurt out the joy of her good memories about Peter." tell Carmen of the crescendo and sharing and caring she had never forgotten. I knew him in school, Sarah said. I spent a year in his lab as a postdoc. Really? He was a surgeon, but he was doing work in angiogenesis in a mouse model. Carmen gazed out the window. Sarah wanted to tell her what she and Peter had talked about. Beauty, fulfillment, shared values. How the sound of his breathing in the dark aroused her. She wanted to explain how an ardent suitor she never liked or encouraged in any way had lied to Peter to convince him she was unfaithful. Is your pain any better today? Sarah asked Carmen. It doesn't change, Carmen said without looking at Sarah. Then Sarah asked her about the pathology rotation. Carmen shrugged. Sarah said little else. Their delayed flight arrived in Florida four hours late. The motel front desk had already shut down. They rang a bell for a sleepy attendant. After the visit to the specialist, Sarah took Carmen with her to the hospital. Peter's family was not there. They rarely came, the nurse said. Sarah and Carmen looked down at Peter. His breath rattled in the opening of the tracheotomy tube in his neck. Peter, Sarah said. Monitors at the bedside gave uncoordinated beeps for vital functions. He's not conscious, Carmen said. Carmen's authoritative medical student's speech irritated Sarah. Let's go, Carmen added. In a minute, Sarah said sharply. This is Peter, she wanted to say. The first man she gave herself to, with passion and warmth and caring she never experienced again. Do you think you're strong enough to carry that with you for a lifetime, my little Carmen? The joy of being loved, Sarah thought. 
He's 72? Carmen asked. Sarah held Peter's coarse, dry-skinned hands in hers. Tears filled her eyes. Carmen turned away and went to sit on an armless chair near the door. Carmen saw no love. She saw sentimentality, and it embarrassed her. Disgusting, really, the sentimentality. Bringing Carmen was an enormous mistake, Sarah thought. Carmen would never understand. She would never perceive the reality across 25 years of time with Peter unable to communicate. Sarah remained quiet for many minutes as Carmen read a magazine. Sarah slowly became aware of Peter's presence. Then there was tension in his hand, an attempt to communicate. She thought his head turned a fraction of an inch toward her. She squeezed his hand gently. She knew he squeezed back. Carmen never knew. Why did you break up? Carmen asked. It was what Sarah had wanted, an interest in the past from Carmen, but now it seemed insincere. It was a fateful misunderstanding, Sarah said. That is so male, Carmen said with disdain. He was hurt. We both were, Sarah said. She felt Peter's hand tighten again. His pressure's dropping, Carmen said as she stared at the green line monitor. Sarah thought through his closed eyes Peter tried to look at her. His pulse is irregular, Carmen said. Get the nurse, Sarah said. Push the call button, mother. I don't see it. It was probably on the floor. Please go, Sarah said. She no longer wanted Carmen in the room. Carmen's crass aloofness seemed cruel. She wished again she'd never brought her. Damn it, Carmen said. As the door closed, the tension in Peter's hand increased. She thought he might have smiled. The pulse monitor alarm went off. In a few seconds, a nurse rushed in. Carmen had not returned. There was so much Sarah needed to explain. She felt life leaving when Peter's body tensed ever so slightly in waves that must have been more imagined than real, like a breeze caressing a flag, then the flag drooping motionless. Sarah waited, hoping for more time with Peter, but resuscitation routines were useless. Sarah took Carmen to the airport that evening. With Peter's death, she needed desperately to tell Carmen every detail of her love for him. Sarah wanted to probe the loss she was suffering. How love could lapse so irreversibly into grief. But Carmen talked continually about her pain in her doctor's appointment, allowing no time for conversation, as if she dreaded words from her mother, any words. In a motel room, Sarah waited alone for the funeral, lying on the bed with little sleep day or night, eating crackers and drinking soda she collected from the vending machine down the hall. Three days later, she attended the brief service at the funeral parlor. Peter's youngest son had come to oversee arrangements. Who are you? the son said. Sarah gave him a questioning look. She could see a likeness to Peter, and her grief escalated. An old friend, years ago, she said. You dated? Almost two years. He looked away. He had demons he was hiding, but she could only guess what they might be. She wondered if he loved his father. She doubted he loved anyone. He was a wonderful man, she said reflexively. She looked away. What would you know, he said without turning. I knew him well, she said testily. 
She looked away from the sun, from the casket, out an open door to an alley. No one ever knew him. He laughed without humor and walked away. He had no consolation for her. He had no grief to compare. A minister, who did not seem to have known Peter or the family, said prayers. The son gave a short, remote, insecure eulogy to thirteen people who attended. She could imagine Carmen reluctantly giving the same empty words for her. She left before the reception started. Waiting to board a flight to return home, Sarah sat at gate 832 next to a gray-haired woman in a print dress with wire-framed bifocal glasses and swollen feet in black low-heeled shoes. She clutched her bag on her lap. Sarah, when she closed her eyes, saw the redundant details of Peter's dying parade before her. She needed to talk about him, about them. In death he deserved to be known for the good man he was. Someone needed to know, to know the source of her misery. You don't like flying? Sarah asked the woman. Why, no, I don't. It's my second time to visit my only grandchild. Sarah looked down. I flew down to see a friend who died, Sarah began. She's adopted. My daughter-in-law has blocked tubes or something. I hadn't seen my friend. Did you come far? The woman asked. She talked loudly as if she might be hard of hearing. I live in New York now. That's why I didn't. I go to Houston. It takes two stops. The overhead announcement told standbys there were no seats available. The woman heard this and opened her purse and looked at her boarding pass. She replaced it. Uh, he was cremated, Sarah said. That's the way it is now, isn't it? The woman said. But not for me. I want to be whole for the second coming. The woman shook her head, as if affirming creation was a serious mistake. Then she stood pointing to a light green tote bag. Would you watch that? The woman said. She headed toward the restrooms. Sarah waited until the woman returned before joining her group that was in the process of boarding. Sarah's aisle seat was on a two-seat row. In the window seat, a tall black youth with a reverse-bill baseball cap sat with his knees angled into her space. She slipped down into the seat. He said nothing. Peter's open coffin was on her mind, his lifeless look so inhuman that the passing of his life seemed even more acute. The plane leveled off at cruising altitude. The youth ate a banana he pulled out of his pocket, put the skin in the seat-back pocket in front of him. You like bananas? Sarah asked. He looked at her as if to tell her to go away, and then he ignored her. He seemed intent on ignoring her. Not really, he said. Sarah smiled, surprised he responded. Potassium, he said. You play basketball? she asked. The youth looked at her guardedly. He nodded. I had a friend who played basketball, Sarah said. He was tall, unnatural when he was young. The youth turned his head to stare out the window. He passed away four days ago, Sarah said. The boy twisted in his seat. He waved to a passing attendant. Hey, you got a pillow? He called out. I'll see, the attendant said, beginning to open overhead bins. Are you tired from a game? Sarah asked. The attendant returned with a pillow. The youth tucked it under his head, turning away and closing his eyes. 
Sarah extracted an in-flight magazine from the seat pocket in front of her and methodically turned pages without reading. The youth was asleep and breathing deeply when the snacks were served. In her seat pocket, Sarah saved three packets of peanuts for him to eat when he awoke. At home, Sarah believed Peter waited to die before she arrived at his bedside. She removed the box from her closet, put it on the kitchen table, and removed items, pausing to stare at each one before she stuffed them back into the box and carried it to the trash chute at the end of the hall. It was bulky and stuck in the opening, and she had to push it with her arm almost up to her shoulder into the main drop. When it fell, she felt no different. She had hope for finality, a sense of a house burned to the ground and then moving on to a new life in a new place. But nothing changed. And when she returned, she checked the kitchen drawer to be sure the ring was there and safe. The next morning she was up earlier than usual to dress and leave. The night had been turbulent with indecision, but before dawn she knew she must tell Carmen it was best to follow her heart. Carmen must not suffer from recoiled love. If Carmen loves, she must love as much as she possibly can and never squelch love for fear of love fading. Of course, there will always be dangers Sarah could never mention. Carmen wouldn't listen anyway. But Carmen must know a tethered heart is never freed and swells with the oppressive sensitivity that becomes ever-present. Sarah would say no more, except that she would sell Peter's ring to help pay the semester's tuition. Outside the apartment building, as she was about to hail a cab, a homeless man who lived in the neighborhood called to her. He was wedged into a right angle where the building wall met the street. "'Oh, do you got anything for me today?' he said, grinning, his eyes looking up. Sarah found a five-dollar bill in her purse. "'My friend died.' "'Oh, no. A shame it is. Uh, everlasting condolences,' he said, and a chunk of hardened egg yolk wiggled at the corner of his mouth caught in his beard. A dying ain't a good for no one, friend or not. I hadn't seen him for twenty years, Sarah began. A lesson learned there, he said. He looked content like a baby about to burp. A neighbor had fed him. He waved to a woman passing, a stranger. Hey, you, spare a little something for a homeless vet? The woman ignored him. Sarah kept an eye to the street. Cabs were sparse today. I don't think he ever knew, she began again hesitantly. The derelict wiped his mouth with his frayed sleeve. His eyes closed, his head nodded. She sat beside him on the street, her back to the wall. She wanted her words to come out now. She did not really believe the vagrant really heard her tell him about Peter, about the missed opportunity of a life vibrant with love. But she spoke with intensity from the heart, as if he knew every meaning— and when it was over, she slumped. Her mind soothed, her emotions quieted, before forcing herself to stand. When she hailed a taxi, he awoke. "'Ah, you have a good day, my dear,' he said, raising a limp hand. She tucked the twenty-dollar bill into his jacket pocket as the taxi pulled up to the curb. "'Bless you,' he mumbled." This story and more than 35 others can be enjoyed free online, as well as five novels at storyandliteraryfiction.com, a website dedicated to providing resources for fiction writers, resources that include essays, interviews, a blog, a newsletter, 
a workshop and tutorial, and much, much more. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of storyandliteraryfiction.com.